Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we ask that your word be heard. Heard as it is enacted in sacrament, as it is read in scripture, as it is proclaimed in sermon. And as the Holy Spirit speaks his truth among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Pentecost literally means 50th. For Jews, it is the 50th day after Passover when there is held the Festival of Weeks, a celebration of when Moses was given the Ten Commandments and the Word became stone and was carried among us. Christians celebrate Pentecost because it was on that day that there was this spiritual explosion, the day when the Spirit of God moved the disciples out of hiding and into the streets of Jerusalem, and the gospel began to be spread like wildfire fueled by wind. Before I read of that Pentecost, listen to the passage often read along with it. Listen to the opening words of the Bible. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, The earth was complete chaos, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And now to Luke's account of Pentecost. This passage is not found in Luke's gospel, but in volume two of Luke's gospel, the book of Acts. Acts 2, 1-4. through When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. The word of the Lord. I have this vague memory of something that happened. I don't remember details. I don't remember names. Then again, it might be something that my imagination is mistaking for memory. Millie will tell you I do that. Stories just come to me. So I don't really know. But whether from vague memory or imagination, I have a story to tell. After leading the family to their pew, and after sitting during the prelude, Reverend Olson rises to the pulpit to welcome those who have packed this sanctuary. Packed, because this memorial service is for Reverend Harriet Simpson. She would still be the congregation's senior minister if, well, this is a memorial service. Reverend Olson became the church's interim minister when Harriet went on disability. 
Reverend Olson begins by saying words about grass withering, flowers fading, God's word lasting. And then he says, Harvey gave me something to read as a word of thanks. And I asked Harvey if he wanted to read it himself. But he said, no, that it was Harriet who was called to stand in pulpits, not him. And that he and his daughter Jessica need to remain by each other's side holding on. So I'll read what Harvey has to say. Jessica and I want to thank you for being here today. Yes, we are grateful for your being here. We hope that you'll come to the reception to speak to us, but that is not what we want to say. We hope those who are not members of this church will forgive us, but we especially want to speak to the members of the congregation she served. We want you to know how much it means to us that you are here, but we also need you to understand why it means so much to us. We have heard from so many of you. You have told us how inspired you were by Harriet and how she was a role model of faith and courage. But we want to be honest with you. Harriet was often scared and her faith was shaken at times, but she was determined to be the minister that you needed her to be. So while we appreciate the compliment you pay her in calling her a role model, we don't want you to leave the service thinking that she should be admired for having something you do not have or being capable of something that you cannot do. Do you think that Harriet was sacrificing herself in serving you while living with a diagnosis of something that the doctors fought to delay but which they knew they could not beat? Do you think that she was so selfless when she continued to visit and teach and preach even while working around surgeries and treatments? Did you think that she had this wonderful private relationship with God because she continued to have faith even as she was under hospice care? Don't think that way. Her faith was a faith that she and you shared. And many times your faith lifted hers. What courage she had was a gift because you held her up. That's why we're not thanking you for the nice things that you have said, even though we appreciate them. We thank you for being her church. You held her until only God could. And if Harriet is to be honored, it will be because we remain for each other what you were to her for we all are going to be shaken and we need to hold each other up. I know that's a sad story with which to begin a sermon after celebrating a baptism. I mean, baptism is a time to rejoice. But baptism and death have always been linked in that on both occasions we commit a life to God's hands. What Harvey said in his letter to the congregation is what we promise at baptism. We do not expect Lena to come to faith in Jesus and live with courage on her own. No, Lena was baptized into a church and into a shared faith. Her identity as a child of God is to come from growing within a family of God. It is a community. It is in a community in which an identity in Christ is formed. That's how Christians think. Or it's how Christians are supposed to think. Americans, with their often zealous belief in individual rights and identity, sometimes get this skewed. 
Sometimes we have this notion that we have this ability to define ourselves by ourselves, that whatever identity we claim on our own, the the world is just going to have to deal. Another story. Because of a daily journal kept by the one it is about, it is not one that comes of vague memories or imagination. It is the story told in the book and movie by the same name, Into the Wild. Many of you know it. Christopher McCandless doesn't like the identity he feels is imposed upon him, nor its expectations and rules. And he has grounds. His family is dysfunctional. He doesn't even like the name he was given, so eventually he drops it and tells everyone that he is Alexander Supertramp. Having graduated with high honors from Emory University, Chris turns down his parents' gift of an expensive car, secretly donates most of his $25,000 of savings to Oxfam America, destroys his credit cards and identification documents, and sets off in his Datsun 210 on a journey of self-discovery. All while his parents and sister think that he is working a summer job in Atlanta before heading to Harvard Law School. His vague plan is to travel to different places to gain experiences and to work different jobs to gain skills, all so he can prepare to live for a while all by himself in the Alaska wilderness. Remarkably, though his goal is to live alone, he keeps making friends along the way. At Lake Mead, Alexander, he's Alexander Supertramp now, loses his Dotson in the flash flood but finds friends in Jan and Rainey, married hippies who also are wondering about, but whose real search is for each other. Their marriage is failing. Because Alexander helps them rekindle their marriage, they hate to see him leave. Ron France hates to see him leave as well. He lives near Salton City, California, a widower who lost his family in a car accident. He gives Alexander work, teaches him leatherworking skills, and eventually wants to adopt him. Alexander says they'll talk about that when he returns from Alaska and then leaves. And then finally, Alexander arrives in Alaska. He crosses a stream to get to a remote area and makes of an abandoned bus a home. Then the young man who wanted to be at one with nature finds that nature is too much for him to deal with alone. He faces one harsh disaster after another, and he thinks of the friends and family he left behind and decides that he wants to return to them, maybe even become Christopher again. But alas, he can't return because the spring thaw has turned the stream into a raging river, starving. He eats poisonous plants he misidentifies as edible. Even as he dies, he writes in his journal. He shares a bit of wisdom that came to him too late. Happiness is real only when shared. Change one word of that line, and Christopher's wisdom is what Harriet knew and what the story of Pentecost is about. Faith is real only when it is shared. Most of you know the Pentecost story, but let me remind you what happens in Acts 2. You heard the first few verses. 
Disciples so inspired as it's as if they are licked by tongues of fire. Disciples so motivated to share their excitement. It's as if a mighty wind blows them from the room. They're blown out into the crowded streets of Jerusalem. Crowded because Jews from around the Roman Empire have come to celebrate the festival of weeks. And it's amazing how bold, how brazen, How joyful these disciples are in telling the whole world what they kept to themselves just the day before out of fear. Just yesterday, before the Spirit moved them, they were shaken. Their leader not only died, but died in a horrific way. But today they are out in the streets telling everyone their fear has been replaced by joy. Their meekness has become confidence. The secrets they kept is now the news they share, and thousands hear the witness, and 3,000 ask to be baptized. Why? Too many Americans say it's because of individual conversions. Thousands hear and accept the gospel and make a profession of faith and are saved, but that's really missing the point of the story. Not that there is anything wrong with individuals coming to faith, We've heard Jesus' parables about the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. We remember when Jesus made the whole crowd wait while he gave undivided attention to an individual, to a child, to a woman who was grasping his cloak out of desperation. The individual matters. But to focus upon the individual is like thinking that Harriet's individual faith is the point of her memorial service. The Pentecost story is not primarily about individuals coming to Jesus, but about a body of Jesus being formed. It is a body in which individuals can find their identity not on their own, but an identity given to them in Christ. It is a body in which faith can be shared and courage borrowed. And despite an oversensitivity these days to cultural differences, the faith that this community speaks to people in different languages and in different cultures. I'm not speaking of some specific confession of faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I'm speaking to what the faith of Jesus and the faith of the community of his followers has to say that so many around the globe and in different languages and through the centuries have found so compelling. The faith says this, every single person is a creature of God. God spoke and creation came to be. God spoke and life happens. God spoke and humans are created. Humans who are like God in that they are given a moral vision and a responsibility to take care of each other and the world. The faith says this, God spoke and this moral Vision received articulation and the commandments are given to Moses. And it's a vision of human dignity and justice, of ethical behavior coming of right worship of God. The faith says this, God spoke and God's word became flesh. And Jesus showed us that God lives among us. His words and actions embody that moral vision. And as daring as it is to say that Jesus is risen, The faith is saying that Jesus remains with us still. The faith says this. We don't have to invent ourselves. 
We don't have to justify ourselves. Our search for identity and our place in the world has a starting place. It begins not with a search, but with the discovery that we've already been claimed. We can grow into a baptismal identity where from the get-go, we are God's very own. The faith says this, we can't lose that identity even as we bring disgrace to it in the ways that we live contrary to that moral vision. As daring as it is to say that Jesus died for us, the faith is saying that God meets us not only at birth and not only at death, but at the very point of our sin. The faith says this, that God's word not only spoke the world in creation and not only became flesh in the life of Jesus, but God finds a body in communities that live out the moral vision in the world. Some institutional expressions of the church don't do a faithful job of this, but nevertheless, the world needs communities that say what few other communities are saying that we find our lives when we give up on trying to find ourselves or to create our own lasting meaning on our own. But we find ourselves in loving others as we are already loved. How liberating it is to have removed from us the pressure of the responsibility to find on our own, our own identity, create our own meaning, establish for ourselves our own significance, all of which would die with us when we die. But life has lasting meaning even at death because it is a life that is shared ultimately with God. The Apostle Paul nicely sums it up. Just as the word became creation, just as the word became the living law in the giving of the commandments, just as the word became flesh in Jesus Christ, the word becomes the imperfect body of Christ when followers join together to love as they've been loved. The community that truly bears the witness of Christ lets the world know that whether we live or whether we die, we belong to God and we're called to live that way. How nice it is that on this Pentecost Sunday that we had a baptism where a child is given into the hands of the body of Christ. And I hope you forgive me for my stories about death, but how nice it is to remember that even at death, we remain in the hands of God. And in between baptism and death, let's continue to be the community of those whose faith is shared, a community where we hold each other up in the privacy of worship and study, and in the public witness needed in the streets. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.